a lot of investors today, they might read through a PPM on an apartment building and they don't really spend a lot of time thinking about what's the senior debt, but debt in a recession is what gets everybody in trouble. If you're a passive investor wanting to learn more about questions to ask sponsors in order to qualify the opportunities, in order to qualify the sponsor, in order to qualify the market that the property is in, then go to besteverpassiveinvestor.com. My team and I created this site just for you so that there is a free resource available to you to learn about the questions to ask, the things to think through prior to investing in deals. So go to besteverpassiveinvestor.com. It's a free resource for you that was made just for you. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Ryan, Andrews, Mark, Curry, how you two doing? Doing great. Good, Joe. Thanks. Well, I'm glad to hear that, and you are welcome. A little bit about Ryan and Mark. They're founders and managers of Aerial Investment Management. In 2018, they launched Recession Resistant Fund, and that fund is focused on targeting asset classes that are designed to perform through a recession or a volatile market cycle. So far, the fund has invested in 7 to 10 deals as an equity partner based in Bend, Oregon. So with that being said, you two want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. Yeah, Joe, this is Mark. I'll start. My real estate career really began doing fix and flips, fix and rentals on my own. I was always focusing on value add strategies and I pretty much spent my nights and weekends at Home Depot, managing rehabs, contractors, tenants. But by 2009, my family and I had been investing together and we saw some really amazing rental properties on discount. So we decided to form an investment company. My father and I partnered up. He is a retired orthopedic surgeon now, but had been investing in real estate since the 70s. And together, we really started raising money from friends and family out of our basement in Albany, New York. That's really when we started syndicating real estate deals. And I just found that by pooling capital from investors, we could access much larger commercial deals like apartment buildings, for example. That was about 2009, the last 10 years or so. We've created, managed more than 40 real estate partnerships, bought, sold, invested in over 100 properties, really across a lot of different asset classes, including single family apartments, short-term rentals, retail, vacant land, self-storage, student housing, mobile home parks, and even oil wells. But in the last few years, we really started feeling like the economy was showing us that we're pretty long in the cycle. And at the time, I couldn't have imagined, I guess, really thinking about it now, that this run would have lasted this long, early 2019. And when you manage money for friends and family, you watch it really closely. So we began positioning investors into assets that we believed would really continue to perform and cash flow if and when the economy turned. And that idea and strategy has turned into the recession-resistant fund, which combines the assets that we were investing in, really to provide investors significant diversification by being able to invest their capital across geography, asset classes, and operating partners. So you're all in on retail then? (laughs) 130%. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I find that interesting that you've invested in so many different things. I want to make sure I captured all of that. Single family, apartments, vacant land, student housing, retail, short-term rentals, and oil wells. Did I miss anything? 
mobile home parks and self-storage, I think, were the two main that we're still focusing on today. There's the transition I was looking for. You're in your fund. And by the way, after reading it, I was like, wait, what does that mean, 7 to 10 deals? So I read in your bio, fund has invested in 7 to 10 deals as an equity partner. But wouldn't you know exactly how many you've invested in? Yeah, good question. So the fund has five deals in it right now. The goal is to invest in a total of seven to 10 deals or so. Oh, all right. I'm with you. Okay. So what are those five deals that you've invested in? Sure. We've got three specific apartment communities. We've got a portfolio of mobile home parks and self-storage facilities and another portfolio of mobile home parks. So those are the three asset classes that we're focusing on at this point in the cycle. Okay. And how many units apartment communities comprise of? One deal is 740 units. Another one is 410. And the third is 280 or so. All right. So I'm 1,500 or yep. so. And then what about the mobile home and self-storage, the first portfolio? Yeah, that portfolio is over 7,000 lots and units across seven states. Okay. And then the third one, the mobile home park? That is a young portfolio. It's about 285 lots and projected to grow pretty quickly here. So educate me on when you say it's a young portfolio. I get that you mean it's projected to grow. When I hear a fund and you're buying stuff, my initial thought, which clearly it was incorrect, was you manage it and then you exit out of it. But it sounds like you're looking to buy it and then just grow more within that fund? Yeah, good question. So our fund is structured where we pool capital from investors and then we go and partner with local operating partners, really what we consider best in class operating partners. So all of our projects are value add, for instance, and Mark and Ryan aren't over here making decisions on what cabinets to put in on an apartment redevelopment or an apartment rehab project. So we raise capital and then we'll go and place that capital in larger deals. It's almost like sometimes we talk about it being like a mutual fund for real estate projects. So we're not the sole equity player in the underlying deals. We're part of the equity on these underlying deals. So some of our investments are single assets like these apartment buildings. And then some of them are portfolios of properties. So when we invest in a portfolio of property, there might be four or five or six different real estate properties in that one portfolio, but we consider that one asset in our fund. But it allows us to get some diversity, even as a young fund ourselves, because we launched our fund just this fall, kind of toward the end of 2018. So when you say 285 lots, but we're looking to grow that, are you not looking to grow the 7,000 lots and units in the first that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, both of those portfolios are still growing, Joe. So it's a good okay. So the current equity position that we have in those portfolios will continue to be diversified as the portfolios grow. So you categorize them in apartments and then you got the second portfolio of 7,000 units and lots and then 285 lots. Are those three different funds that investors invest in or are they investing in one fund where all of these things are performing? Our fund is one fund and then those are three investments that we've made. Okay. Um, so our investors get diversity across that at a lower investment amount. Cool. And you said you think of yourselves almost as like a mutual fund. I know there are certain security regulations for if you bring in, I believe, more than 100 investors, 
you are considered a mutual fund. Have you come across that at all? Or I guess the question is, how are you registered? It is. Yeah. Good question. So yeah, we're not close to a hundred investors yet. So we haven't come under that rule. Our fund is in a Delaware LLC. It's currently just a 506C offering. So that allows us to go out and offer publicly and market our fund publicly, but every investor has to prove that they're accredited investor at the time they invest. So that's a similar structure to everything that's going on, all these crowdfunding sites or a lot of what's going up on these crowdfunding platforms, et cetera, where the investment can be advertised publicly, but then investors have to prove that they're accredited. And that's compared to the old days where investors just checked a box and said, yep, I'm accredited and everybody moved on. Today, they have to prove it. And that's how our fund works. Sure. And what third party do you use to do that verification process? We typically use Verify Investor. We've had pretty good success with them. Okay. And then one more thing to add, Joe, we are, I guess we'd say a shorter term investment fund where we're not evergreen and we're not going to be open for two years. So our plan is to continue to grow the fund, the assets under management for the next few months, maybe into the summer or so, and then probably close it. That way it's a fixed fund with a very fixed percent of equity and investors in it. Okay. And how much equity have you raised so far? We've got about a million and a half in the fund so far. Okay. So these deals that you reference, then you have a minor stake in them. You're not bringing all the equity for these deals. That's right. So the type of fund that we've formed, sometimes it's called an LP fund. So we come into these deals as an LP. So we're a limited partner in a much larger offering as well. And that's one of the ways that even a small nation fund size like we are now, we're able to get some diversity. As the fund grows, we'll probably make larger dollar amount investments in individual deals, although we don't expect to ever be the sole equity partner across a larger deal like that. We want to spread our funds out a little bit more. Sure. You've raised $1.5 million to date, and what's your goal for when you close it out? Yeah, we'd like to see this fund grow to about $10 million over the next eight or nine months. We just launched at the beginning of November in this, so a couple months into this, and part of that was the holidays. But yeah, we'd like to see this fund grow to about $10 million. Then like Mark said, we'll close it. So it is going to be a closed-end fund. And then we'll just hold the assets. And each has their own business plan and exit model. Most of those are in kind of the five to 10-year range. So our investors will be in our fund five to 10 years, but we'll, as individual assets liquidate, we'll pass that capital back to investors. So their entire principal amount isn't invested through that whole 10-year period. And what's your fee structure? Yeah, good question. So we've got a management fee on our side. It just kind of covers our overhead. And then we've got an 80-20 profit split or a 70-30 profit split with investors above a PREF. And that depends on investment size. There's different terms for different investors. Oh, and the PREF okay. is between 10%. Again, depending on a couple different things, investment size and when investors came in the fund. Interesting. As you can tell, I've never done a fund before. All my deals are 506B and they're individual investments. That's why I'm so interested in what you all are doing. So it's a different split depending on the investment size and it's a different preferred return depending on the investment size and when they entered the fund. Exactly. So the fund model is really interesting and was like Mark had shared in his bio, he'd been doing syndications for the last 10 years or so. My background is mostly on the investment management side and I put a number of different funds together. This fund is actually the fifth fund I've managed. So we were really looking at the state of the economy and everything about six, eight months ago. And we'd been talking around this idea of, gosh, we're deep into a cycle. It would be great to put together a fund or some kind of structure that could kind of 
grow and scale a little bit larger and also give investors diversification instead of having to plunk larger investment amounts into individual deals. So we kind of sharpened our pencils and sat down and said, okay, what would a fund look like if we created this and basically went out and looked for investors that were seeking diversification, that agreed with our view that a recession is likely coming, that we're long into the cycle. Matter of fact, this is the second longest expansion in U.S. history. We're over nine years into it. And if it's still growing in June will be the longest expansion in U.S. history. So really we sat down and said, okay, let's create a fund for passive investors where they can get diversity, where we can put them into our asset classes that are our favorite. And that are really asset classes that we studied. And there's some core reasons why they'll continue to perform in a recession, or at least we believe they will. That's kind of our best business model. So we started working on that really through the fall and then launched this in October, November, 2018. More high level. What are the steps when you have from, okay, you have the idea. Now you need to actually be able to take the first 50,000 or 25,000, whatever it is from the investor. What are the steps you took from the first point of at the idea to then being able to take the first investors in? Yeah, we started first by defining our strategy. So we had to figure out what we were investing in, what are the assets, or at least the asset classes that we wanted to invest in. And we'd invested in a lot of different ones and thought and talked about and modeled several different asset classes and really came down to this mobile home park, self-storage, and what we call workforce apartments as our key assets. And then we spent a lot of time modeling that out of how would the portfolio actually act and respond, giving actual deals that we'd seen, but kind of modeling out a pro forma for the fund of call it 10 investments that we'd make. So we started there. And then once we had determined what our investment strategy was going to be and our philosophy, which is just kind of like how we're going to pick assets, what we're going to say yes to, what we're going to say no to. Then from there, we sat down and wrote our PPM on the fund. So the private placement memorandum, at the end of the day, that's the product that we're selling. So that's our 100-page document that describes our strategy and who we are and what we want to do and why we're starting this business and what's the legal structure and the profit splits and everything of that. That includes, of course, the operating agreement, subscription agreements. So then we sat down and spent a lot of time writing that up and getting everything dialed on that exactly how we wanted it. And then we took that out to the market. So it's very similar to 506B as in boy in terms of the legal process. It's just, it's 506C and you're off and running. Yeah, Joe, that's about right. PPM, subscription docs, a ton of risk disclosure is, as I'm sure you know. Sure. Always letting investors know that there's risk and being very clear and transparent about that. But allowing yourself to be able to also solicit online and publicly is the big key advantages to the 506C. Oh, yeah. I guess I didn't realize that you could do multiple offerings within one 506C. I guess I just never put that together. But clearly, you all are pooling money for multiple deals under one 506C offering, right? Yeah. Our 506C offering, that's our fund itself. That's how we capitalize it. And then we turn around and invest that into any number of deals. We're we're not limited on the number we can do. And really kind of the last comment on the 506C versus 506B, the only difference there, it's the same safe harbor under the SEC. The only real difference there is investors can self-certify that they're accredited under the B 
model, but you're not allowed to advertise publicly. It has to be from somebody that you've had some kind of prior relationship with. But under a C offering, you can advertise publicly and get new investors, but they have to prove that they're accredited at the time they invest. So when you're presenting to your investors, you're... 506C offering and what the fund is planning on doing and you're modeling your pro forma, do you have in there that it's going to be a 10-year hold and these are the 10-year projections? Yeah, that's it, Joe. We model it out with the five to 10-year term, expected term of the fund and the projections of annual cash flow per year, the overall ROI, the IRR, et cetera. So it's similar marketing, I guess you'd say, or summarization of the investment offering as if it's just one apartment community, for example, versus taking capital and spreading it across several. And you said five to 10 years. So you have the option to close it out earlier if you want to? Yeah, we do. But it's based on the underlying assets expected life of asset has its own business plan. The ones that we are choosing are typically five to 10 year holds with some refinance out options in the earlier years. But we want to be conservative and just make sure investors are going into it with kind of the long game in mind. That's important too. So one challenge I could see with this structure is that you all are a minor limited partner in these deals so you're not the only limited partner and you're not a major limited partner. So that leads me to believe that your voting rights are basically non-existent within each of the deals, more or less. That might change depending on the operator, but more or less, you're not going to have a lot of weight to throw around since you're a minor ownership interest. So I guess my thought is just what I'm trying to think through is if one project, say nine out of 10 projects, they're all within that 10-year time frame. But this 10th one, they just can't sell for some reason. And these operators, they have the property. They put a 20-year loan on it without you saying, hey, wait, this is only supposed to be five years. So how do you close out the fund if you have one project that doesn't stay within that time frame? Yeah, it's a good question. It's a similar concept to investing in one deal. You have to take the terms of that deal, make sure you're comfortable with them. And then essentially do a lot of due diligence and make sure that the risk versus reward is within your buying criteria and makes sense for you. But these deals specifically are set up to essentially not have very high voting rights in the first place. So going into it with a passive mindset is what we do and what other investors do. And we're not looking for voting rights. We're relying on our operating partners who are experts in their asset class, experts in their niche to really execute positively on the business plan. And that's something that allows us to diversify capital across operating partners. If we were simply making those decisions and did have a lot of voting rights, we probably wouldn't have as many hours in the day or resources available to be able to create the portfolio that we're really trying to create. So it's by design to have limited voting rights. And I'll mention one more point regarding that. We've been doing this for many, many years now, Joe, and a lot of our operating partners we have pretty significant investment experience with outside of the fund. So a lot of them are tested and tried. I think we just last calculated it that 80% of our operators in our fund right now, we have active capital invested outside of the fund prior to even us creating the fund. That's personal capital. It's my family's capital. It's a lot of our investors' capital as well. So we 
try and perform with operators that are tried and tested and that we've had personal experience with as well to help mitigate against any potential long-term risk like you're discussing here with your question about the 10-year horizon. Got it. And I imagine you have something in your fund structure so that if some wacky scenario does play out where one operator goes off the reservation and has a 15-year hold when it was supposed to be five, then you can extend the life of your fund to accommodate for that. Or maybe you just figure out some buyout clause to buy out the equity there and then you all can close out your fund. Yeah, that's right. And each underlying asset has those terms specifically as well. If the manager doesn't perform or, or does some sort of bad actor move, then we can, as sure. LPs, vote them off the island per se. Sometimes it's a majority vote or supermajority vote needed. And we make sure that there's clauses that do allow us to do that should the need ever become there. It's, it's never happened before, thankfully. I don't know that it will, but we want to make sure that it's written in there that we do have some say as to change course if need be. And you mentioned the management fee. What's your management fee for this? So our recurring management fee is 2% annually. That's just based on AUM, not on asset value. And then we have a one-time acquisition and disposition fee of 1%. Cool. The purchase price or something? No, just asset under management. Asset? Capital. Capital raised, Joe, that we deploy into deals. Sometimes we spend months on the underwriting deals before we decide to invest in them. So you're you're your acquisition All our fees are based on our own fund's capital size. Okay. So your acquisition fee is 1% of whatever the capital that you raised for that investment? Exactly. Huh. Okay. Cool. Well, what is the best real estate investing advice ever that you two have? Yeah, Ryan, you want to do that? Yes. I think one of the things we really focus on and when we talk about, sometimes people ask us, okay, recession-resistant fund, what does that really mean? Or when you're looking at assets, how do you use that lens? And kind of the top thing we talk about and that we look at is debt. What is the debt on the property that's above us? Because we almost always come in as the equity investor. And a lot of investors today, they might read through a PPM on an apartment building and they don't really spend a lot of time thinking about what's the senior debt, but debt in a recession is what gets everybody in trouble. And I think we bring a unique lens to that. We stay away from, especially right now, as rates are going up, we stay away from floating rate debt. We want to see at least 10 years so that we could get through a recession if something corrects. And when we think about debt, I've been a lender prior to launching this fund. I managed a construction debt fund. So I've personally gone through five foreclosures on the lender side. I've been the lender that foreclosed on people. So we bring an interesting lens when we talk about understanding how lenders think. And lenders never want to foreclose, but they end up bringing out bigger and bigger economic hammers through default fees and foreclosures to protect their principal. And then they eventually will take a property away. So that's just one of the big things we look at. We want to make sure our assets, we believe they'll continue to cash flow through recessions. They can keep making that debt service payment and keep generating returns for our investors. That's kind of one. And then what's the structure of that debt? So that if things go wrong or sideways or don't perform as expected, how is that debt going to act? Yeah, Joe, just to kind of add one more point on that, we're at a very risky time in the market cycle, and we just don't want to become a distressed seller. We don't want our assets or operating partners to become distressed sellers. So typically the number one thing that causes that is leverage. Over leverage or risky leverage is what we try and avoid. So I think that's just kind of the takeaway there for the best advice right now to your best ever listeners is to 
be careful as to what the leverage is, the structure, the fees, the terms, and how's it being projected into the pro forma. If there are extension fees, are those built in? If it's interest only with a short-term balloon payment coming due, you just want to be careful that the whole business plan or the majority of the success isn't relying on the exit at a fixed period of time when the debt might come due. We're going to do a lightning round. You two ready for the best ever lightning round? Yeah. All right, let's do it. First quick word from our best ever partners. If you're a passive investor and want to learn more about Ashcroft Capital, the company I co-founded with my business partner, Frank, and in particular, want to learn more about our strategy and how we think about the opportunities that we purchase, go to ashcroftcapital.com and click the strategy button above and you'll be able to read through our thought process we use when we're purchasing multifamily properties. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Best ever book you've recently read? Best book ever? For me, I'd say Roger Lowenstein's When Genius Failed. I don't know if anybody's familiar with it. It's about the hedge fund long-term capital management failing in the late 90s. Best ever deal you've done? Best ever deal I did uh, about two years ago, I was part of a group that bought a large lot in Seattle and the owner we were buying from was convinced it could not be split. But we'd done some research and we're pretty confident there was an old plat map that would allow us to split the lot and sell it as two buildable lots. It was located in a great neighborhood in Seattle. We bought it. It took less than four months to do the paperwork and split it. And we more than doubled our money. So the project ended up with just a super high IRR, like 170 something percent because to double your money in a few months. And so our investors loved us and we want to do more, but it was one of those kind of home run deals for us. What's a mistake you've made on a transaction? My earlier years, Joe, getting emotionally tied to an investment property and maybe not treating it 100% as a business was something that I learned as a young investment investor that played a lot of good roles going forward, the way to analyze and look at things. Best ever way you like to give back? Personally, I teach a real estate investing principles and best practices course at our local college. It's something I'm passionate about and enjoy doing and love giving back to the local community, especially some earlier seasoned investors who are trying to get into the marketplace where we are today with the cycle. And how can the best ever listeners learn more about your fund and what you two have got going on? Our website is Aerial Investment Management, kind of a long name. Aerial is spelled A-E-R-I-A-L. So Aerial Investment Management. We've got a little videos of us touring some of our properties and everything online. Our contact information's there also. It's just Ryan or Mark at aerialinvestmentmanagement.com. Well, Ryan and Mark, thank you so much for being on the show. I certainly was educated a ton and I hope the best ever listeners were as well. I was not aware of using a 506C and making it more like a fund versus doing single one-off deals. Perhaps I should have been, but I just hadn't put that together yet. I thought a fund was something completely separate from that. And I really enjoyed learning more about your business model, your approach, and how you're structuring the fund, 
and how you went about creating it. Super helpful information for passive investors as well as active investors looking to put larger deals and structures together. So thank you so much for being on the show. Really enjoyed our conversation. Hope you too have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out.